Hey, this is Wolf Hoffman from Accept, and I want you to focus on metal. Scott here and Richie and welcome you to another episode of Focus on Metal and it's actually the uh, episode that I've been wanting to do for uh, for three to four weeks now and I keep saying well, I'm going to do it the next week and I never do it and of course that's because uh, we have just been insanely busy but this week I've got Richie back down in the studio and we are going to do a very Metallica focused episode this week as uh, Richie did a great talk with Johnny Z about his new book and then also uh, one of our gracious listeners gave us an incredible interview that we're going to run this week as well. So, how you doing, man? I'm good. It's I'm been good. a hell. It's been a hell month. It has indeed, <laughs> and it's not stopping yeah. either. It's crazy, but uh, I'm glad to have you down. And uh, like I said, I've been teasing everybody week after week, saying I'm going to do this like next week, and then next week comes, and I'm like, nope, not this week. But hopefully, everybody understands that uh, you know we don't make a red cent off of this. We do this all in our free time, and we try to fit it in with, with uh, everything we've got going on in our lives. And you've got a crap load more going on than me. And so it's great when we can actually get down and do this. And uh, it was just kind of cool that, you know, you, we kind of had two things just kind of come together for this week. Uh, you you know, you, you had the uh, listener that provided the interview. But also then, next thing you know, you're talking to Johnny Z, and that just kind of fell together as well. And I would have liked to get it closer to the book date, but again, I mean, shit happens, so uh, we're doing the best we can, and we're, we're doing it this week. But uh, I have not had a chance to read Johnny's book. You have? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I felt it could have been more in it, though. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not as detailed as I would have liked. Some things in it that he kind of left hanging. Do you, do you think that, that people that aren't like detail whores like us that like to absorb everything... Uh, they might be like, oh yeah, it's okay. Kind of like some of like some of the Eddie Trunk books, where it's kind of it's kind of glossing over a lot of stuff. Where, I mean, you look around and like the the books I have hanging around here that I'm reading right now are it's clearly yep yeah this guy likes to read every little detail about it. I mean, is, well, is there a bias to that? But only because of what we expect, or do you think in general it needed more? I think in general it needed more. I think a lot of it is out there. Yeah, um, all these bands have been interviewed over the years, and yeah. they probably told their side of the story. Yeah. Uh, what I really liked about Johnny's book was uh, the beginnings of the label, mm. because that's something that you know he do, he did. Yeah, that, I mean that was like a cool thing with um, with the Noise Records book. I like that how that how that album, you know, the David Gelke's book. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, it was really good, and, and how that developed and stuff. So I like that. I like that kind of stuff. But he had a lot of detail, tons. Yeah, tons. But he had a lot. He had all the bands in it as well. He did. Yeah. Um, I felt that Johnny's book could have had a little bit more of a contribution mm. from people from the label. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit more from some of the bands that he Yeah, I mean, with. you made an interesting suggestion, too, you know, when you first came over tonight, too. I didn't think about it, but once you said it, it was like, wow, that is a pretty cool idea, was comparing it to, to Ellison's book and, and having the, the contributions going in. Yeah, he's new. As well, yeah. yeah. And, and I thought, wow, you know, that, if, if that's kind of the, the gap, that would have definitely bolstered it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's... I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I thought there'd be more in it, though, mm. personally. Um, but, it, you know, if, if if you want to know about the label, yeah, you know, there you go to get, yeah. get it for Christmas. It's, it's, it's a decent read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's an interesting little part of metal history. And obviously the guy played a huge part in, in making a lot of things happen and starting from, you know, freaking flea market stall to, to what he did, which is which is cool. And he did it. Um, I know, like I said, I haven't read the book, but I know that just from everything else you hear that he, he did it without really a lot of knowledge about what he was doing to begin with. No, no. And he, I even asked him in the interview, he, like he was flying blind on a lot of it. It was yeah. like, he let his heart rule, uh-huh. not his head. <laughs> and he kind of jumped in and, and said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And then, shit, how do we do it? Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of that in the book. Yeah. So what do we say? We Let's run the, let's run the, the interview you did with Johnny. And then after that, we're going to get to something that uh, I was just psyched. The, the night you texted me about this, I was psyched. I'm still psyched about it. And uh, we're going to get to that next. But first, let's hear from uh, a guy who was kind of responsible for a lot of uh, 
the next part of the show happening, um, yeah, he was key. So uh, let's run that interview with Johnny. Sorry, I was trying to get off the other interview, but they kept on asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> Just questions. Question, questions and more questions. That's right. So let's get into it, John. I'm sure you've been doing a ton of press for the book. Um, wh- why, why, why bring out the book now? Because surely people would have asked you to do it a few years ago. Well, you know, I've been retired since June of 2018. And I never really had the time on my hands that I have right now. And I was sitting there going absolutely stir crazy. And I said to myself, John, this is the time to write the book. This is what you'll do now to keep yourself busy and keep you out of trouble. The only problem was I couldn't remember the order of things and the storyline. And, oh, my God, I just couldn't remember. And then a fella called me up out of the blue to do a Metallica interview, which I didn't want to do. But he seemed really good at research. And I asked him if I could see some of his his writing. He sent it to me. I liked his research work. And I said, could you research my life? He said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and he's in a collaboration with John Zazula writing a book. And uh, I was able to go forward from that day. Now, when he's sitting down asking you questions... Um, is there anything in particular, John, you can remember that came back to you that you you completely forgotten about? So much you can't imagine. <laughs> I didn't remember that much about my exploits with Ace Frehley uh, beyond the first album. You know, I just went into a dark hole about what, what happened there. And I needed to call Ed Trunk, who worked with me for many years, to stimulate my thinking. Um, there were stories about anthrax I wanted to tell that were hilarious that I actually forgot about until someone asked me, is there any interesting tales you have that you didn't talk about in the book? And then I realized there's a few here and there. But not enough to write another book about, you know what I mean? Mm. But yes, I forgot about things. In fact, in the book, I have a section that comes after the book about all the bands that I want to talk about that I forgot to talk about in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so John, was there anything um, in particular about about back then or just you in general that you, you wanted to address in the book that maybe not a lot of people knew about you? Well, what I wanted them to know was that it didn't come easy. You know, I wanted to mention that I managed to make it through a very bad, bad depression I suffered from, and, and that held me back, believe it or not, from achieving even greater things. And I wanted people to see that it was a team effort. It was Maria. It was Marsha. It was Ed Trunk. It was everybody. That It was Missy, Pilato, that helped formulate the label and bring the bands to the label. Uh, I, I wanted to settle that and make a statement about that because these are the unsung heroes of the Megaforce story. You know what I mean? Mm. Now... I'm glad you brought up Marsha there because one of the things that definitely comes out when reading the book is her undying love and faith in in you as a person because I'm reading the book and, and some of the decisions you made, especially early on, and I'm thinking, you must you must she must have thought you were crazy. <laughs> he used to use the expression bat shit crazy. <laughs> She used to say that all the time. It was really funny in the forward of the book. Chuck says it at the end. It was so funny. And the new Overkill album has a song called Bastard Crazy. So it's a timely phrase. But she put up with my shenanigans. Yeah, because... She stood by my side through all the crazy and all the hardships and all the financial troubles. She believed so much 
because she was close to me and she realized I really believed that it was going to happen. And my belief was greater than anything that could get in front of me and hurt me. Now, having a belief in it, John, is one thing, but, but actually pulling it off is another. Now, <laughs> when, when, when you actually got, in, got into the business end of, of, of forming the label and signing the bands, you probably weren't that familiar with the legal aspects of band contracts and all that. Um, tell me about the learning curve, learning all of that. Well, I'll tell you something. I crafted my first management and record company contract. I put everything that I felt I needed in it and had the lawyer put his language on it. And when I was doing time, there were books by Billboard, I think, about the music business. And I would read them. They had outlines of contracts and stuff in them. Uh, and I would, while I was in bed, I would read this and take notes. And so I prepared myself for when I really had to go to a lawyer. I didn't want to be an idiot and let him write whatever he wanted to. I wanted to know what it said in that paper. So I, the first thing I taught myself was how to write a contract. So a lot of the bands you end up signing, except for Raven, I think, most of them were from the U.S. Was that deliberate? Or was that because you didn't really have anyone over in Europe that could maybe source out the bands, like someone like, say, Halloween or, or from Germany, like that noise record seemed to get a lot of those bands? Right. My partners in Europe were more my competition than my allies. And I did have a friend in Space Wessels, a Roadrunner record. Hmm. And that's why we put out Merciful Fate Melissa on Megaforce in the States. And Raven, once I brought them over, they sort of stayed. You know, I don't think they ever went back. <laughs> they just stayed. <laughs> so it was like having a U.S. band. Mm. Uh, Anvil I would have worked with, but they had other plans. And uh, it just turned out that the bands were from the U.S. It really made no difference where they would have come from. I would have brought them over. Uh, it's just that my head was focused on things that were happening in the U.S. at that time. And that's where I was mentally. John, why do you think uh, none of the labels in the U.S. were signing metal bands in, like Metallica and Anthrax uh, and Testament? Yeah. I can tell you, because I was on the front line presenting them to all the labels. They didn't know what the hell it was. They thought it was, there's, a, there's an expression in Newcastle, England. They thought it was all a pile of shite. <laughs> <laughs> John, could you understand the Raven guys with the Geordie oh, accent? Yeah. With the, with the oh, accent? Oh, yeah. I got them. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes don't know what they're talking about at all. But you know, Mark, I don't know. John, I understand. Okay. Um, you had Metallica live in your house for a while, yes. uh, and we, they kicked out Dave Mustaine, and they sent him back back west. Um, what did you keep an eye on what Mustaine was doing, and when he formed Megadeth, did you try and sign him? I did go out to California, to L.A., to the studio, to talk to Dave Mustaine. But Dave had a fellow there who represented him, who I just didn't like. I didn't see eyeball to eyeball with. And it, to me, I didn't feel comfortable doing business. And I think that guy made it uncomfortable for Dave to do business with me. So we we really couldn't get it together. So you you got on with Dave anyway. To a degree, I don't know if he ever trusted me in those days, but he knew I knew what I was doing. Hmm. Was 
was Lars the leader of Metallica back then? I know he was the guy who did all the interviews. Lars would talk with the band and then come back to me with the decisions. Lars was the main businessman, let's say, in the band. Always. Okay. I remember a couple of weeks ago I interviewed Greg Christian. He's a bass player in Testament. Sure. And it was the day, it was the anniversary of Cliff Burton's death. Mm-hmm. And he told me the story that you have it in the book, but he told it from his side uh, about him finding out Cliff passed away and you turning up in the studio the same day to, to look at the band. Um, stories like that, are, to me, as an, as an outsider, are gold because... I, I can't imagine what was going through your mind getting that phone call. Because he said you were walking around San Francisco from three o'clock in the morning. You came into the studio. You, were just, you just weren't yourself. No, I was battered and shocked. You know, we had just left Cliff before he went on that last ride. He was in London with Anthrax. Anthrax was the opening band on that tour. Uh-huh. And uh, we were hanging out at the Bullfrog on Carnaby Street. And he said, see, I said, see ya. I flew home the next morning. I flew to San Francisco, actually. I, I don't remember the story, how it all happened, but I was in SF at 3 in the morning when I got the call. That I do remember. John, te- John, tell me about the first time you saw Cliff play, because you would you would have had the demo, and you only went off that. You brought the band from the West Coast all the way up over to your house. Tell me about watching him play for the first time. It just made sense. He was a rager. He was a real headbanger. You know, bang that head that doesn't bang. That's Cliff Burton. Hmm. You know, uh, I loved his bell bottoms. We talked about ZZ Top and Leonard Skinner, you know? Interesting man. And the way he rigged his bass was very interesting to have a rock and roll yet jazz sound. Really cool. Uh, I could say nothing but wonderful things about him. Yeah. Did you think Metallica would go on after he passed away? Yes, but not so soon. Okay. I think they had a tour booked and they had to in Japan, wasn't it? I don't remember. You know, I wasn't the manager of Metallica at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But Greg Christian told me he was one of the first people to actually try out for him. It's very possible. Hmm. Very possible. So, John, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, and I'm nearly sure you made the phone call when Testament were doing the New Order record um, and they handed in the music and it was less than half an hour long. Was that you that called the studio giving out about not being enough music on the record? Well, I had a contract with Atlantic Records that an album had to be 40 minutes long with X amount of songs for X amount of length. And somebody had to tell them. I don't remember telling them, but if it was that case, I would have called and said, hey, guys, let's get it up to uh, 38, 40 minutes. Yeah. You know, like I couldn't put out that Slayer album that was 26 minutes. You know, I couldn't do it. Rain and blood. Yeah. That's what they call it. Uh-huh. And uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't get away with it in my contract. John, tell, tell me about signing King's X, because I've been a massive fan of that band since the first record. And I'll give you my side of the story from when they came out, because there was a show on, on TV back in the UK called Monsters of Rock. And there was a writer on it, very famous writer for Kerrang! He writes books now called Mick Wall. I know Mick well. Yeah. And 
he reviewed two albums on his TV show that week, and this will tell you the, the time that album came out. One album he reviewed was the, the second Poison record, and the other album he reviewed was King's X. Now, you must have known when you signed them that they were just going to be a hard sell compared to everything else that was popular at the time. True. They were very hard sell. That was the problem. I mean, we got them to number two in America on the radio, number one video on MTV, and we sold 200,000 units of the record. But we couldn't really go for the touchdown pass. We just couldn't do it because we put them on tour with ACDC worldwide. It can relate. The fans didn't get it. Only the King's X fan got it. They were definitely, uh, you know, the term they use, a musician's band, that a lot of other musicians absolutely loved them. A band's band. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I actually saw them on that ACDC tour in, in Dublin and Ireland. It was They were incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was there. I was in the UK. Yeah, the UK got them very early on. Right. I had them at the Astoria. Hmm. But, and then Kerrang! put them on the, on the cover of the magazine. I think the album might have just come out. And the UK just fell in love with the band straight away. Yeah, well, he, th- people get it in the UK. People get it in Europe. You know, America, they were getting poisoned. Did you, know? you, John, did you tell all the bands that you were signing, or the majority of them, particularly the, the trashier, heavier ones, that you'd ha- it'd be a hard slog in the US, that really your bread and butter would have to be in Europe and maybe South America? Well, to tell you the truth, we did much better in America than we did in Europe with most of the bands. It, we, even Anthrax broke in Europe. Maybe on the touring-wise, they did better in Europe. But Anthrax broke in America first. Testament broke in America first. Overkill broke in America first. Ace Frilly Solo Project broke in America first. King's X broke in America first. You know, uh, all our bands broke in America first. Yeah. John, did you sign the band Profit? Who? Profit. Profit. Absolutely. I'm a massive fan of that Cycle of the Moon record. What an album. It was produced by Spencer Profit. Now, tell me about getting him as a producer. Um, I he he has a certain way of doing things, and I've talked to other people that have worked with him, that he molds the band to his his vision rather than what the the way the band want to go. Did you have a good relationship with Spencer? I had a very good relationship with Spencer, and the band basically sounded like that album. So he didn't change much of it? No. No, they're very much like that. Actually, better than that. They reached out a little more in, in live performance. They were really quite progressive when they played live. You didn't get that from the album. But when they went off in jams, sometimes it was like, yes, you know, very progressive stuff. Yeah. Now, that was when you were starting to branch out a little bit from the likes of Testament and Metallica. That well, you, I, couldn't, I couldn't just keep on putting out signature thrash records. Hmm. I wanted everything to be a little different and give air and breath to the thing that came out first. That's why I didn't sign Testament right away. It sounded to me like Metallica. Yeah. Now, in the first chapter of the book, John, you, start, you talk about Michael Alago and I think it was Peter Mensch uh, turning up at a Metallica show. Um, they ended up going with them. And one of the questions I wanted to ask was, was there like an unwritten code of conduct there that managers, if they wanted to get a, take a band, they kind of had to talk to you first because you were managing them or was it just it a was, cutthroat business? It was, 
I don't, let's put it this way. It wasn't friendly. And we'll leave it at that. Okay. You know, I, had, I had no choice in the matter. And you have to realize something. If somebody doesn't want you to manage them, how are you going to manage them? Yeah. You want them to just hate you? There are managers that don't care. But I care. So that's the reality of it. You know, if they want to, they want to. If they don't want to, they don't want to. Yeah. No, no, John, getting in, when you, got, when you got in bed with Island Records and Atlantic, when it came to the likes of Anthrax and Testament, um, do you think you were treated like an equal partner there? No. Definitely not. They did the best they could with what they knew. You know, it was like, God forgive them. They know not what they do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. You just went in there and kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it till you got what you needed. Yeah. So, John, I've got just a couple of questions before I leave you go. Um, what are the bands that got away? The ones that you, w you had a chance to sign and you didn't? Did any that well, stick out? Yeah, there were two. Two bands. Uh, one for management, which was White Zombie. I didn't want to manage them because I had ministry. So I passed on them. I loved Rob Zombie very much and his fans. And Pantera. Oh. <laughs> I, tell you, I could tell you Sophie Cross. I could tell you other bands. But you know what? But those were the two big ones. Yeah. And final question, John. Um, what band did you sign that you thought would become bigger and, and didn't? Raven. Raven? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're still touring. Raven are fantastic. They're great. Yeah, very, influ very influential. They, they made some early mistakes early on in their career, and unfortunately, they paid their whole life for it undeservedly. Yeah. You know? They, you know, you've got to be true to your code from the beginning. It was rough. Yeah. Well, John. They remain, they remain, just sort of going, Ricky, they remain one of my favorite bands today. Yeah. And they're still out there doing it, which is fantastic. Okay. All right, John. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure here. All the best to you. Yeah. And good luck. All right, John. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. All right. Take well. care. All right. Bye-bye. There you go. Richie's interview with Johnny Z. And, uh, again, go out and get the book. Like Richie said, it, it's a good read. And uh, um, anything else you want to talk about with the book? or He's doing a shitload of press for it. Yeah. Tons yeah. of press. He's yeah. everywhere doing it. Good for him. It's good. Yeah. He must be pissed off answering <laughs> the same questions. Um, Probably. I did ask him about profit, uh -huh. and I don't think anyone, many people, asked yeah. him about that yeah. band. Yeah, you kind of hear a pause when you ask him I'm about that. I'm a big that. fan of that band. Yeah, um, I think they're a New Jersey band as well. They've uh -huh. got a one album on the label. I think it's it's brilliant. But, yeah, um, we we at one point I uh, with my buddy Jeff, we almost called our band Profit till we was like, oh wait a minute, there's a Profit. <laughs> so we were a protege. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it is interesting though that the bands that he missed. Uh huh. When he mentioned them, one of them was what, Pantera? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, but he had kind of reasons for that, too. So it was like, uh, but I can still see that, you know, him now looking back, I'm sure that still kind of nags at him, you know? Mm. Uh, not as much as like Dick Rowe at Decker not signing the Beatles, but still, it still <laughs> nagged at him, right? <laughs> um, when we had Tom Werman on, who did he say he passed on? He passed on some big uh, bands. I can't remember. They? Wow, that was, God, that was years ago. Holy yeah. crap. I, he mentioned a couple of bands that yeah. blew up and... Uh -huh. And uh, he couldn't get him signed. Yeah. But th that happens to a lot of the A&R guys. Sure, they yeah. probably say, ah, you're not going to go anywhere, and next thing you know, they blow up. Yep. They become massive. Speaking of A&R guys, too, there is uh, on, uh, it's on Netflix, I think it is. Um, there's actually a cool documentary on, on Michael Allegro. You know what? I saw that about a month ago. Yeah. And um, I, I just haven't gotten around to watching it. Yeah, it's good. It is good. 
Um, I, I enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, it's a cool thing that's out there. Yeah. But uh, next up, I got, I'm still psyched. I, I don't know if you can hear it in my <laughs> voice, but I was like, holy crap. Is uh, We had basically an interview, right? Only as ever aired once on, yeah. a, on a local station. And uh, this is it's uh, an interview with, with uh, Cliff and Kirk at the Metal Hammer Festival. So that's what, 85, 85 right? I believe. So that's September, I think it was September 14th of 85. Um, pretty much like the last date of the Ride the Lightning tour. After that, I think they did a couple, what, they did Day on the Green after that. And then they did two other shows, I think, in the U.S. and California, um, like really close to home shows. And then after that, that was that was the end of that tour. And if you think about it, it's kind of odd that almost a year later is when Cliff died mm-hmm. on the on the damage mm-hmm. tour, right? So what, September it was, 27th, I think? It was September I think? sometime, yeah. Yeah, so almost a year later. Uh, so this would have been the last full tour that Cliff played on with the band, but... Uh, I, I'm, I was still, I was stunned the night you texted me and said that this was a possibility <laughs> and it was coming in. Well, I look forward to it. This, the backstory on this, um, I'm going to, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right, Rafa Araya. Uh, he's on the Facebook page. Yeah. And he's someone who comments on some of the posts that I put up. Uh-huh. And over time, you get to know that the guy, he plays. Yeah. Right? Because he's, the way he talks about certain things with certain musicians and certain, uh-huh. certain things that I post. Yeah. And um, and he he gives some very detailed and long comments, which I like. Yeah. If a guy's going to bother his arse to comment that long. Sure. He's obviously into, into it. Um, and he just messaged me out of the blue. And he said, I've got this interview with... Uh, Cliff Burton and Cork Hammett that I did when I was a kid yeah. in 85. Um, I'm offering it to you. Do you want it? Yeah. And it's really well done. Yeah. I mean, it's Now, I hadn't heard it. Yeah. Right? And, of course, I said yes. And then he had problems getting it, finding it. He yeah. thought it was corrupted and he had to do certain things. And he said, I'll get back to you. And I'm uh-huh. like, shit, <laughs> I'm not going to get it. Right. So eventually he said, yeah. I've got it. I've I've been able to fix it up a little yeah. bit. And he sent it. And I listened to, I didn't actually, I haven't listened to all of it yet. Yeah. I listened to a good good portion of it. And it's well done. He's edited it all himself. Yeah. And he's put all the, the background himself in about doing it. Yeah. And, like I said, it's really, really well done. It's, it's not probably like, easy for you to, to edit. Well, I expected it was going to be, you know, the, you know, the question response, but he actually really like sets the stage for each question and all of that and it's it's really really well done and the audio is is pretty damn good too yeah um and he told me that it aired once on a local radio station yeah and he doesn't believe it's aired anywhere else yeah uh i think he said he's the only one that has a complete copy of the interview Mm. and like all i can say is you know we're so glad he Offered yeah, it. It's yeah. like like we've had Brian Heaton interview Jason Slater, and now we've had Raf uh, give us the interview with Cliff, yeah, and and Kirk, and I'm like, wow, you know, we're just gracious that it people is, and, it, and because it's, it. it's 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 metal history, right? And I mean, people would love to hear this kind of stuff, so it's it's great that if we can if we can get it out there, but at the same time, also give some props to somebody who's. Who's you know been holding a piece of metal history? Yeah, he it didn't have great. to. He didn't have to give it to us. No, not at all. He offered, and yeah. then he probably had to go to work to try and fix it. He, he still, obviously did. Yeah, he still did it all, yeah. and you know, we're just really happy. He yeah, even you know, hit me up. I'm so happy he hit me up and said, "Do you want it?" I'm like, "Fucking right, I do." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and again, I mean, I mean, I could have run this before, but I was bound to determine that we were gonna we were gonna give him props, tell the story. And do this right because I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really grateful that well, uh, someone provided I, I, it. I messaged him and I said, "Listen, I'll, I'll talk to you over the phone, and you can talk about, yeah, getting it together and all that." But he's already done it. Yeah, in the in the inter- in the beginning of the interview. So I'm thinking, you've already edited it and you've already given all the backstory yeah. and all that. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're good. We're just going to run it as is. Yeah, it's and it's like I said, it's it's great. I'm I'm psyched. And uh, it was, like I said earlier, it was just really cool that 
you know, Johnny Z is out there promoting, so we get this Johnny Z interview to go with it. It's it's kind of this perfect melding of, of a whole bunch of Metallica. All yeah, we're just show. lucky it worked out that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be, this would have been a great show number 500, but we've still got another 60-some-odd shows to go, and, and I'm like, no, we're going we're gonna to do it now. I think we've got enough audio for 60 <laughs> shows if I don't do any more interviews. <laughs> but uh, it's 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 great. So uh, I want to shut the hell up and let's uh, let's run it. Yeah, run it. Back in September of 1985, I had the good fortune to be at the Metal Hammer Festival at the Lorelei venue in Germany, where Metallica would play a one-off gig while they were in Copenhagen, Denmark, to record what was to become the metal milestone album that is Master of Puppets. Shying away from talking to James and Lars due to the fact that they would be overrun by reporters and James's already legendary reputation for being aloof and being a button guitar player whose shining example was one Kirk Hammett, I opted instead to interview my hero and that intriguing bell-bottomed wild man of bass, the late great Cliff Burton. When I say interview, though, I have to remind you that I was a teenager back then. My English wasn't anywhere near as good as it is today, especially when being near people I was in awe of. My questions were, to a large extent, rather pedantic, even if both Kirk and Cliff were really easygoing and gave me some good material in spite of my amateurism. Especially in hindsight and with some good editing, what I recorded at the time is a good and at times historical document of a pivotal time when Metallica were on the verge of their big break, as evidenced in the recently released book about Master of Puppets album. The retelling in the book and the photographs of that day, all of which I and many others present in the backstage area witnessed being shot, filled my head with vivid memories and reignited the intent to finally do what I had put off for many years, digitize the interview tape, which I managed to keep in pristine condition for over 30 years now. It is all the more special because it's one of the documents out there that preserves not only Cliff's voice, but also his thoughts and his character, because Cliff was never anything less than himself. And in being Cliff, he also taught me a valuable life lesson that day, as you will find out. So, without further ado, let's get on with it. As was aptly captured in the book's chapter about the Metalhammer Festival, the official press conference was an assault of real and would-be journalists on the different band members. One of them mistakenly assumed that Metallica had recorded a video clip, something Cliff corrected. No, we have no video. No, they, um, recently we played a day on the green in San Francisco. And the the MTV people taped it, some of it, but we have no official Metallica video. We uh, have not done that. Sooner or later, there will be. Uh, Not yet, but sooner than later. Next album, something from there will be made into video. At that time, the day on the green footage hadn't reached Europe yet, as MTV was only just gearing up to get on cable here. One can imagine that they recording that now famous segment made it back across the Atlantic by word of mouth and taken on the guise of an official video clip, which the band would obviously only record for one years later. Now, being fans ourselves, we obviously wanted to know which recent bands Cliff and Kirk liked to listen to and whether they liked any particular punk and metal bands. Sam Hain. Uh, Sam Hain is... Uh the singer from an old band called The Misfits, uh, his new band called Sam Haynes, very good. We all love him. It's great shit. And we like Exodus. Uh, and local uh, East Bay, California band called uh, Death Angel is very good. Like them. Today, Misfits. Misfits. Metal Church, Exodus, Sabotage, Fate, even though they broke up. And speaking of fans of bands, what did Cliff's parents think about his career choice? My parents are very proud. They're they're glad to see me uh, succeeding. They're very happy. Nothing beats having your parents in your corner when it comes to being a career musician. It can make all the difference, as any budding musician can attest. And since we're now talking about home comforts, we were interested in what Cliff did in his time away from the band. Um... Usually playing other music, uh, you know. I'm I always playing something, or uh, I go fishing, uh, I get drunk, smoke dope, fucking uh, find young ladies, uh, have fun. 
This being the 80s, I was kind of astounded that anyone would just come out openly about smoking dope, especially in the Just Say No era America. Cliff's mention of his native California triggered a back and forth about the state and how Long Islanders' twisted sister, by way of their singer Dee Schneider, had famously dubbed it California on the live video they had recorded there earlier that year. As Metallica had also toured with the band recently, Cliff was happy to paint the band in a positive light. They're cool. Are they, are they cool guys? I mean, we, we did, uh, what, six gigs with them here in Europe, and they, uh, they know their shit, you know? They're, they're smart guys. They're not fucking idiots. They know what goes on, and uh, they, they talk to us on the level, you know, about the business and stuff. They know it, and they're very helpful. They're, they're good guys, personally. Very good. And here comes the moment I will never forget. Being a teenager and wanting to be clever, I didn't see the harm in asking Cliff to name a few of such bands. Here is his reply. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't like to start shit, man. I let other people talk shit and I don't like to lower myself to their level. Do you understand? I, I don't like to be fucking the same as other people that choose to to try and make themselves higher by lowering other people. You see, that I think comes from ignorance, and uh, I wish to remain as non-ignorant as I can. As you can tell, his reply was so mature and intelligent that it made a really big impression on me. It's a life lesson that I've tried to live by ever since. Suffice it to say, though, that without even having a dig at me for asking that question, and in doing so, being the perfect example of living by his words, he had taught me a valuable life lesson for which I am still grateful. Obviously, Cliff was very comfortable with who he was. He also was very comfortable at home, and less so in Europe, given the fact that he stated in previous interviews he didn't like recording Ride the Lightning in Copenhagen. Well, I, uh, I get uh, kind of pissed off there, you know? Uh, I get... Uh, it just gets fucking boring, you know? Yeah, so... I don't know, I just have to deal with it. That's one of those things. And while we were on the subject of Ride the Lightning, I asked Cliff's thoughts on the album. Um, I think it was uh, as good as we could do on the budget and the time that was allotted to us. And as for where this next album would be recorded? We're doing it in Copenhagen. Again in Copenhagen, the capital of boredom? See, the, it's a very good studio with a very good engineer, and it's at a good price. So, you know, you must make sacrifices for professional considerations. It was, however, very obvious Cliff wanted to stave off boredom as much as he could, so we launched a call for young ladies to come and pay them a visit. When I told him I could perhaps help him with that. Please do. <laughs> Please do. The studio is Sweet Silence. They can uh, contact us through there. Ladies only, please. And when I told him I'd come with them, his response was very, very enthusiastic. Uh... <laughs> One of the other interviewers put forward the viewpoint that Metallica's lyrics were rather pacifist, given subjects of songs like the Ride the Lightning title song, which could be construed as a message against the death penalty, or For Whom the Bell Tolls, which seems to deal with the futility of war and the lives needlessly lost in them. You think so? <laughs> That's a very interesting interpretation. You know, we, we try not to take a stand on those things. You know, we just comment upon them. They're not, uh, like, enforcing a viewpoint at all. It's like a general comment. You know, we leave it up to the people to draw their conclusions. We just try to pick intelligent subject matter. Earlier in the year, and much in contrast to the perceived pacifist lyrics, they had released the Creeping Death single which contained their now famous rendition of Diamond Head's Am I Evil. Why exactly did they choose that song? Um, we like it. It's an old song we used to play uh, long ago. Metallica played that long, long ago. And uh, we wanted something to put on the B-side of the single, so we put that. We, we all liked it from way back, so we said, what the fuck? It's a good song. While they didn't work with a producer on that album, there had been rumors going around about Metallica getting one for the upcoming album. 
We're not taking a producer. We have changed our mind. Uh, we will co-produce the next album with the engineer, the same engineer that engineered the last album. Right. He's uh, good with sounds. Uh, he will handle things strictly on a sound basis, you know. We're not going to have someone manipulating our music. Our music is our music, and we are going to keep it handled by us. So, you know, it will be, for the most part, self-produced, and Fleming will deal with sounds. It was no secret that, at the time, Metallica drew bigger audiences in Europe. This was evidenced on the day itself, when, by the time I had arrived at the festival ground, I couldn't find any of their t-shirts because they had all been sold. Bummer. It must have been a strange experience of being big in Europe while being American and trying to make it over there as well. So I asked Cliff about the difference between the two, which didn't exactly lead to an informed reply about venues, crowds, and fans. Um, the girls uh, are more fun in America. They, uh, they, they know, how to, uh, know how to behave, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they know what's going on. Whereas over here, they, uh, they are not as aggressive or even willing, shall we say. So I had to be a bit more specific and to the point and asked about the difference between the metal scenes. Um, it's pretty similar, actually. It's, it's pretty close. Except, you know, the language barrier, but I mean, when you get on stage and the people are thrashing it, it's basically the same. Only, you know, when, when we're at home in America, we're more comfortable because uh, we just know more what's going on. We're not in a foreign land, you know, so it makes things easier. Well, you see, me personally, I like to spend as little time away from the States as I can because I love America so much. I really, really love it there, you know? And I get homesick. I like to go back home and fucking... Huh? Yeah, I got a home, man. California is... This in turn reminded me of a story I'd read recently about James being detained in London with the band members of the band Satan. Could Cliff provide us with a bit more insight? Yeah, he... Uh, they did uh, some destruction of property and were arrested. That's typical for them, you know? So, speaking of the metal scene, what were Cliff's thoughts on the bands that, at the time, were cropping up everywhere, who were obviously inspired by Metallica's brand of thrash metal? Well, it, it's good to be able to inspire people. It's flattering to know that people like our music so much that they take it to their heart and they reflect it in the music that they play. You know, this is, is very flattering. Um, it's just that I would like for all people to remain as original as they can and to do what they want, you know, do what they can and not, uh, shall we say, be derivative. I think it's very important for new bands to be original as they can. It's very important for them. Uh, and I hope they can achieve that. Now, one of the most surprising things I heard that day, and which had also been doing the rounds in our European metal scene, was that Slayer were also inspired by Metallica. A few hours before I interviewed both Cliff and Kirk, I had interviewed Savage Grace's Christian Logue, who had this to say. I know that uh, Metallica was doing it first, before them. Slayer used to play Judas Priest copies and Iron Maiden copies, and then they went to go see Metallica at a club. They said, oh, and they threw away all their spandex pants and striped shirts and they bought spikes and... It goes without saying, I had to ask Cliff whether he knew of this. I believe that's true. That's also what, what James and Lars tell me. You see, James and Lars, they're from L.A., where Slayer's from, it. they saw this progression. They saw that happen. You know, I'm from Northern California. I did not see any of this, so I, I don't pay attention, you know. Of course, years later, Kerry King also confirmed Metallica's influence on his fledgling band, but at the time of this interview, that was still something of a revelation. Recalling the early days brought us back to Cliff's own pre-Metallica history with trauma. What was the reason for him to leave that band? And had he heard their debut album? Well, trauma was um, becoming more and more commercial. They were starting to shorten the songs and like make things uh, simpler and um, I got sick of the commercial bullshit and uh, James and Lars 
they wanted me to join. And uh, I eventually got so sick of trauma that uh, I said, well, what the fuck? You know, these guys seem to be into doing what they want, you know? They do whatever they want, and I like that idea. So I said, yeah, what the fuck? Let's do it. No, I haven't heard it. I have not heard it yet. I haven't got a copy of it or anything, so I don't know. And that concludes my interview with Cliff. On to Kirk Hammett. My first encounter with Metallica Live had taken place a year and three months before at the Heavy Sound Festival in my native Belgium, where they played with Warlock, Merciful Fate, Twisted Sister, and Motorhead, among others. What, if anything, were Kirk's memories of that gig? That was a good gig. I had a lot of fun there. Speaking of Merciful Fate... Knowing of the connection between both bands, as Fate had graciously shared their rehearsal space with Metallica while they rehearsed for the Ride the Lightning album in Copenhagen, what were Kirk's thoughts about the band's then recent breakup? I mean, uh, I'm obviously, you know, disturbed, but I heard, heard that King Diamond's new band is brilliant. And uh, I heard um, Hank Sherman's new demo, and I wasn't amused at all. I wasn't too amused. Real commercial shit. This also led Kirk to give me some insight in how he thought about money, which, in hindsight, is, of course, rather ironic. People like money, and I'll do anything for money. I hate money. Like Cliff, I also asked Kirk about his views on the bands who were inspired by Metallica, especially the first wave of German black and death metal bands, who at the time weren't exactly proficient players compared to them, but somehow got signed anyway. Uh, well, I'm, I don't really, I haven't really had a lot of time to listen to a lot of black metal bands these days because, you know, of various things like always working on new, new material and stuff like that. But I mean, in general, there's a lot of good bands out there and there's a lot of bad bands out there. Now I hear a lot of good stuff and I hear a lot of bad stuff out there. Since the largest portion of Metallica's fan base at the time was in Europe, I also asked Kirk for his thoughts on this continent and its metal scene. Europe's great. It's good, good, good to get out here. Um, there's times where I've, I've felt, you know, a little bit homesick. You know, it's like I, obviously I'm American. I prefer America better, but Europe is is fun. 1985 was still a long time before the internet interconnectedness that we now all enjoy without a thought, but in those days, the Atlantic Divide was much greater than it is today. Other than a few travel reports from budding metal journalists, some of whom were friends with the band, us European metal fans were rather oblivious to the US metal scene. So I wanted to know from Kirk whether it was easier to get gigs in America, which prompted this rather libidinous response. It's easier to get laid in America. <laughs> no, a, that has nothing to do with it. But uh, the audiences in Europe are real good. Always like the fucking wild fuckers. You women out there would be forgiven to think all those boys are only about that thing, right? Anyway, on a more serious note, I wanted to know if Metallica still played small clubs over there. Yeah, we just played uh, um, Ruthie's uh, over in San Francisco. It's a small club that holds about 300 people. It was a, like an underground gig. There's only about 100 people there. It was great. We got all drunk and started playing. We played a, played a Misfits song and a Fang song. It was real fun. As everyone who knows Metallica history knows, they came to the attention of the metal scene through the underground tape trading network, which fervently traded their No Life to Letter demo between fans worldwide. Was Kirk still in touch with that network? I knew that when I was really into like, trading tapes and stuff, I'd always feel real excited getting a new tape. This also led us to address the subject of bootlegs. Did Kirk own any Metallica bootlegs? I do. I have fucking nuts and metal up your ass. That's, those are the only two I have. I've seen other ones, so... As I had also bought the fucking nuts bootleg that same year, I had, of course, listened to Dave Mustaine's interview with a certain Gene from MSC on Site 4. I first asked Kirk if he knew what Ron McGovney and Dave Mustaine were up to back in those days. Dave's in Megadeth and uh, Ron is uh, in L.A. hanging out on the beach or something. I don't know. Given that Kirk owned that bootleg as well, I was curious to hear what his reaction was to the comments Mustaine had made about how he sucked and how the crowd at an early Megadeth gig had shouted Kirk Hammett sucks. His answer was, in my opinion, rather restrained yet still pissed off enough. Well, he runs his mouth and I run my business, you know. If he would put the energy he puts into his mouth, into his guitar playing, maybe he'd be in a better position. But he's not. 
Of course, this is all water under the bridge today. Fences have been mended for a long time now, and I'm only including this part of the interview as it's relevant to Metallica's history because it shows the acrimony between the two parties as it was back then and how they dealt with it, or rather, how they didn't. Also an interesting piece of 80s mental history is the feud between thrashers and posers, or as they are now known, hair metal bands. Kirk offers a rather poignant view which doesn't really show a lot of love for this type of bands. May the best man win. I hate posers who tease our hair and wear makeup and shit like that. Also, in a previous interview, James had offered his opinion about Motley Crue, saying that Metallica had a fan mentality and they did not. Fuck yeah, Motley Crue think they want to be women or something, I don't know. They think they're God's fucking gift to mankind, you know? I've seen girls have dressed like that. <laughs> I've seen lots of girls are dressed like that. And with that out of the way, on to the past present. Could Kirk confirm that they would be producing the next album themselves? Well, we're producing it ourselves also along with Fleming Rasmussen who engineered the last album. He's co-producing it with us. He works real well. He's real good, good engineering. As he couldn't, even though James would announce the album title on stage later that night anyway, Kirk did offer us some song titles and announced something that made us look forward even more to the gig. Uh, no, not yet. We haven't decided on what we're going to call it yet. But uh, we have some, some titles in mind. Uh, we have a um, song called Disposable Heroes. We're going to play tonight. We're going to play a new song tonight. Yeah. And uh, another one called Battery. And another one called uh, uh, Master of Puppets. That made for an interesting memento, as I recorded my own bootleg of the gig on tape that night, and as a consequence had a version of Disposable Heroes six months in advance of the album's release. Anyway, what could he tell us about how the songs had evolved sound and songwriting-wise from the Right the Lightning songs? It's, I, I like to think it's heavier. Heavier, faster, more guitar solos, yeah. More guitar solos sounded like a lot of fun to me, seeing as I was a devoted and eager student of the Hammett solo method, and when I expressed my love for his solos, he offered this gracious reply. They're good fun, I do too. <laughs> and that concluded our interview. But Kirk wasn't done with me. A while after the photo shoot that happened after the press conference, seeing me walking around with my tape recorder and microphone, he walked up to me and told me he wanted to sing a song for me to record. Here is that song. I've lived my life. I've lived he then kindly signed my jeans jacket, which my mom carelessly threw away only months later because the collar was torn and she wouldn't allow her son to be seen with ripped clothing, signed by his guitar hero or not. I still haven't forgiven her. Suffice it to say, for the teenage fan I was at the time, it was an unforgettable experience and an unforgettable day as a whole. I had gotten to interview my musical heroes, see them up close, and to top it all off, I watched their concert, which is now available as a DVD in the Ride the Lightning Special Edition box, up close in a press pit right in front of the stage while recording that bootleg I mentioned. Such was the impression it left on me that even now, when I listen back to the interviews or watch the DVD, I'm instantly there again. It was indeed a pivotal time. A time where Metallica fans could still walk up to their idols and talk to them freely and feel they were just like us. After the milestone that was Master of Puppets and Cliff's unfortunate death, all of that changed. A year and two weeks after the interview, as I was gearing up to see Cliff again at the Belgian concert of the Master of Puppets tour, which was slated that October, one of my friends called me and told me he had read in a newspaper about the terrible accident that took Cliff's life. To say we were devastated is putting it mildly. Having read and heard many testimonies about him over the years, it seems that Cliff made a big impression on all who met him, something I can confirm firsthand. He will always be missed. There you go. Little Cliff and Kirk from back in, uh, in 1985. Good conversation. And again, huge freaking thanks for... Uh, for letting us use this and air it and share it with everybody. It's, uh, I, I feel honored to be able to have done it. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Um, any other any other comments for this week? This is packed. We packed a lot of crap into one week. That nuts only one week. I know. <laughs> on, on, on to the next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then uh just gonna say, you know, thank you for listening to us week after week as we're gonna slide into December and uh, the last few weeks of twenty nineteen. And um, I, I I don't know, I know about you, but I'm I'm really looking forward to uh our annual winter break. Yes, if <laughs> if we get a break. If we get a break, yeah. <laughs> Which we never do. I I'm trying, man. I've no trying. I have no idea what's coming out. Yeah. Um, yeah, you've been busy as hell. In January and February. Yeah. Uh normally dies down around this time of the year. Yeah. But then it amps up again early mm-hmm. in early in twenty twenty. So yeah. 2020, Christ. I know. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's it. That's it for this week. That's it for November. And we've got more great stuff for you on the way in December. And uh, at least at this point in December and then into January a little bit before we uh, take a well-deserved break. But uh, anyways, um, for myself. And myself. And everybody else here hanging out at Focus on Metal. Have yourselves a great middle week. And until we talk to you again next week. Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.